0: President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Fuller. Tony Crescenzi is an Executive Vice President, Market Strategist at PINCO. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at WisdomTree, Registered Representative of Side Fund Services. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, the author of stocks for the long run and the future for investors i should note the professor is a senior advisor to wisdom tree and our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategies nor tied to the offer of selling investment products the views of our guests are their own and not those of wisdom tree or its affiliates uh, after the professor's take on the markets this week i to be talking to two great guests uh, tobias lefkowitz the chief u.s equity strategist for Citigroup research really one of the great market commentators on the markets and what's happening uh, really looking forward to the discussion with tobias second part of the program. We'll be talking with Brian Neider, a partner at Lead Edge Capital, a growth equity fund uh, with nearly a billion dollars in assets under management. I've known Brian for a very long time, uh, and he's really uh, one of the sharpest guys out there, and they're really doing some interesting stuff. Uh, but Professor, before we get to our guest, Dow 20,000, we finally, we finally hit I finally it. Uh, no longer have to talk about that.
1: Yeah, finally got over the top. I was actually all day in Toronto doing talks, and they tracked me down CNBC. I was actually there twice, and uh, and it was a convincing move above. It was interesting in that when we went through ten thousand uh, back in uh, March and April of nineteen ninety nine, we we went above it, then we fell back. We didn't close above it for two more weeks, but we went above it, you know, very strongly um, and stayed above it. Uh, but boy, you talk about news that is going on. I mean, Trump now with Mexico. Um, it brings up, you know, a, a, a number of anxiety points. Although today's market is is holding in here, uh, Wall Street Journal and New York Times reported that Trump is looking again at the border adjustments, um, which pretty much he had said he didn't like two weeks ago. Um, and you know, is this uh, is is this going to start tariffs? Is this going to start a trade war? Uh, I don't think so, but. Uh, I think it's a negotiating stance. I think this is how Trump negotiates. He takes a very firm position and then meets with the guy and you know I'm I'm moving towards you in the position. Um, uh, we behavioral economists talk talk about it called framing. You frame what your reference point and then you move towards the other person. We'll see whether what what's going on there. We had GDP, um, you know, come in uh, this morning. A uh, little disappointing. 1.9 oh, percent. People were thinking in the low twos had also made the year of 2016 1.9. And by the way, it was since a lot of the GDP was inventory build buildup, um, there's some modest lowering of first quarter. The one we're right in, we're just about ready to you know, finish January with about um, uh, uh, looking at about 2% again. We're stuck in the 2% rut, which is not good. Not good uh, given the tremendous increase in the good labor markets that we've had in job, uh, job creation. We're also in the middle of earnings season and earnings has been pretty good. I mean, we, 76% of about 150 of the firms have, uh, have beat the average, although some have beat the, the, the street and still tanked because either their revenues missed or the guidance wasn't good. So, you know, there has been, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, Reception to all a lot of the earnings that are coming out are, are not uh, all that great. Uh, and then finally, uh, not that we need any more, but uh, the FOMC does meet uh, next week. And of course, we, everyone universally does not consider, you know, no, no rate hike. Um, but March is still a open question. Um, I would say right now the markets are around 50 50 on uh, March uh whether we're going to go up or not and uh they don't know they won't know until March for sure but certainly the you know what's happened with the markets uh is something to consider so there's a lot of things going on by the way in the middle of all this the vix which of course is the volatility indicator has sunk to another multi-year low which is a little bit concerning because it means that no not not a, a lot of people don't are not afraid of this market they're not buying puts on this market um uh despite trump (laughs) making some strong opinions uh could this set itself up for a little bit of a spill going forward it's hard to say uh low low vix does eventually often cause problems but not at the very beginning when it drops so it's very very hard to use a short-run indicator so there's a lot of stuff swirling around uh i mean the basic framework corporate tax reform, less regulation. That's the mantra of the Trump bull market. If we continue to move in that direction, stocks continue to rise. If we veer into something that could spark a trade war, all
0: bets are off. You know, I, so I'm, I'm just watching the headlines here on CNBC. I think Peter Navarro's, you know, Trump's trade guy on there. I mean, there is some sympathy, I think, to a lot of what they're saying, which is, uh, you know, you, go, you think about Mexico. We export to Mexico. They tax us at 16%. We don't do any taxes on imports from there. And so people freak out about this trade war. But it, what do you how do you respond to that, that there is something, you know, Germany yeah. exports to us. They give a rebate back to their BMW and Porsche people. Um, right. and, and then they tax us when we send it over there. I and mean, there is some, some common sense to that logic.
1: Uh, uh, no, you're absolutely right, Jeremy. And, uh, I mean, you
0: know, basically,
1: I mean, you know, the, the best way to look at, you know, as Trump said, I'm not against free trade. I mean, I, I, I want to do fair deal. In other words, uh, if, if if we're going to let your goods in, you let our goods in. Right. Uh, uh, and we haven't negotiated a strong enough on that latter point. Um, Now we economists actually just say, well, if we just do trade, uh, you know, uh, even though you know we might be buying more than than them, they're taking that money and investing it in the United States, and we're getting it back uh, in the form of uh, you know uh, investment, uh, and we're getting cheaper goods. Uh, So, but it is also true that it decimates as it has, uh, you know, a lot of our manufacturing, a lot of what had been a, uh, a domestic industry that moved abroad because of cheaper. So, you know, I, my, you know I'm a free trader, uh, as I would say, you know, 90% of economists, but willing to say, all right, again, let's try to make it even freer. You, we'll, yeah. we'll take your goods if. And I think that's the, that's the best way to look at it, and hopefully Trump has that bargaining stance. And uh, it, because if we start putting 30% tariffs, and then Mexico starts putting, and then the other countries do, we don't. I don't want to see what happens.
2: <laughs> yeah, no,
0: it's it's interesting. And so we, I saw we backed out of TPP, but there's already discussions of of Abe scheduling time to come meet with Trump. So it's it's going to be interesting to see how all these bilateral negotiations go. Um, when we talk with Tobias, he is a you know a market strategist. He comes up with you know, forecast for the market. I'm going to get his take on on the market's returns expectations. But I I, I got a sense he thinks we're going to be in a pretty good market environment. He has a high probability of good market gains this year, and we'll we'll explore that with him. But, you know, what would you say, you know, your outlook, out 20,000, what are you looking for from here? What kind of percentiles would you say? um, Obviously, it's a very uncertain environment. If
1: we don't veer into a trade war or or big tariffs and, and, and those problems... I don't see why we can't get another 10 to 15, really even possibly even 15 percent this year. Um, uh, and, and, and if we move forward on corporate tax reform and less regulation, that's I think worth uh, you know uh, a definite boost in the in in the market. Um, varying in ways that you know cause frictions and less international trade. We've got to accept the globalization of the world economy. I mean, we'd be everyone would be. Much poorer off without it. If we veer in that direction, yeah, then n- none of these good things would happen. So it's a little bit of a two pronged uh, situation where the market. If if we get if we get those positive things happening, yeah, this is just the beginning of the Trump bull run.
0: Well, very good, Professor. Uh, thanks for taking the time to, to, to give us some market commentary here.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And we're talking with Tobias Lefkowitz, the Chief U.S. Equity Strategist for City Research. Uh, he's also a member of the firm's Investment Strategy Committee. A lot of great reports that I'm, I've been tracking here. Tobias, welcome to our program.
2: Thank you very much, Herman.
0: So as we, we just left it off with Professor Siegel on Dow 20,000, what chances are for, uh, for this year. Uh, why don't we start with one of your pieces on your expectations for the market um, you know, and, and how you think about the probabilities around you know, those gains that, that we're seeing from here.
2: Sure. So uh, there, there are a whole bunch of things that are going on, obviously, that uh, Professor Siegel mentioned prior to, to me jumping on here. Um, I'm probably not as optimistic on, on the 10%, 15% uh, environment in terms of gains. At, at some point, I think people will be worrying if bond yields are moving higher, um, what implications will be to, to multiple compression. Um, and I, I think you need inflation about 4%, and I think you need uh, bond yields probably close to those kind of numbers as well. Um, when you talked about the probabilities, we do some interesting work. I'm I'm not a huge fan of the cyclically adjusted PE or the Shiller PE um, in the sense that it's not a great predictive tool for investing, looking out over a year, two or three. Um, and unfortunately, not many investors really have 10-year time horizons. Um, number two, when I take the idea, though of cyclically adjusting earnings and putting an evaluation. I'm an old cyclicals industry analyst. That part I like, but then you have to also normalize your bond yield. And we do this by using the five-year forward swap contract of the 10-year yield. What do markets believe the 10-year yield will be five years in the future? And we do this going back over time. And on that basis, that normalized earnings yield gap where we're taking both that Shiller PE and that five-year forward swap contract concept um, we get about an 87 percent probability of markets being higher uh, in 12 months. Now, give, and, and we're talking kind of mid to you know five, six, seven percent type single-digit type returns um, on that 12-month horizon. Now, keep in mind, we go back to the 1970s on this analysis, and over that time frame, 73 percent of the time markets go up um so the the random outcome is the markets will go up because economies grow and earnings grow etc but when we get the 87% the kind of 20% 20% better outcome than just the random that's at that's a very interesting you know aspect to us uh just to give you one last context on that in 2007 um that same model was yielding a 63% probability of markets going up which was below the random actually it was a very bad signal so um, the, the, again, the approach we take is not traditional, um, but I'm interested in making money, not you know being like everybody else.
0: No, yes, you you would be preaching to the choir with Professor Siegel here on the Cape Ratio. He's done a lot of writing on on the on the, tra- the drawbacks of the Cape Ratio and how you know the last twenty years it would have always basically suggested staying out of the market. Um, what the interesting I, I, on your comment on the swap rate, the five-year forward swap rate. So right now we look at a, at a ten-year bond, two and a half percent, five-year bond about two percent. What do these swap rates talk about? You know, if looking at five years from now, what what are they saying the rates are going to likely go to?
2: So on the ten-year, I don't know this five-year one. Uh, I'm sorry, the ten-year five-year swap rate. In other words, I don't know the five-year swap. Rate, okay, so I'm saying, um, it's probably about it, it moves day to day, and I, I'm lucky at the second, uh, but it's probably about thirty percent higher. So, three and a quarter, hmm. um, which isn't that frightening, quite honestly. Yeah. Um, I think if you start moving towards to 4% on, on a bunch of our work, it would probably start to get a little bit nerve wracking, all things being equal. Um, but that's a far way to go from where we are today. And again, on a straight PE basis, you'd need over 4% inflation, and we're about two.
3: Yeah.
0: No, it's um, it's an interesting way of looking at the markets, and I like the, the probability numbers uh, that they're giving out. They're giving a pretty high probability of, of a pretty robust market. So hey,
2: earlier this year, without well, not earlier this year, or last year, when we we're kind of sitting in the very difficult early part of the year, um, with fears of recession, and the Fed's going to raise four times and things like that, um, the model's giving us 100% probabilities wow. of making money.
0: No, that's great. Uh, it's, uh, it's a really an interesting way of looking at the markets so once you decide top down we think the markets are, are pretty healthy good chance of success um, talk about how you would position within the markets I mean if if we think we're getting a rising interest rate environment uh, or you know not, maybe not sharply rising but how does that suggest to position once you decide you want to be in the US markets okay so
2: they're, they're- I'm going to give you kind of three quick answers to that one is when you think about bond yield movement, um, it also has huge implications to which stock prices you wanted to look at so over the last one five ten twenty years, um, if bond yields are going down, you bought you know traditional defenses staples utilities things like that, and you sold this the divers cyclicals and financials and if bond yields are going up, you do the reverse okay so that's our, that's yeah. point one number two uh, if you think about inflation trends or more Expected inflation. So what are, what are happening to, for example, 10-year break-even rates? Again, the idea is cyclicals over defensives if you believe they're moving higher, and they have been moving higher since February last year. This is not since the bond yields bottomed in July or since Trump was elected in November, in early November. We're almost a full year into rising inflation expectations, and that's why you should have been buying cyclicals over defensives and probably should continue to. Number three, um, has to do with more the detail we do, where we look at each industry group and we and we do this not at the sector level, but at the industry group levels. Which valuation metrics have been the most predictive of stock price performance? Not which is cheaper, which is expensive. Where are earnings revisions improving or weakening? Uh, what we've created these proprietary lead indicators off 360 different economic series that we back test to see how investors have responded to traditional, you know, so let's say a change in durable goods orders and things like that, looking out a year. And we build these proprietary models to help us make far better decisions about what investors will do than what we'd like investors to do because, quite honestly, I don't have enough power to convince everybody to do what I want them to do. Um, All three of these are, you know, so when we look at these things, they are clearly leading us to banks, diversified financials, capital goods, energy, um, people think they've missed the boat on these. Uh, we've picked up recently consumer services and added to an overweight in media. Um, we don't particularly love retailing. Part of it is the challenges of brick-and-mortar industry facing off against the online sales environment, but that's not the only reason. We don't like telecom um, In for, for earnings revision reasons, for example. So there, there are different aspects to how we build it. We just don't do the macro view and say uh, the economy is... Expanding just do this or the economy is shrinking, sell that. No, oh, it's very interesting. It
0: work for us. We're talking with Tobias Lefkowitz, the, the chief U.S. equity strategist at Citigroup. Uh, this is sort of a very interesting model, Tobias, on on how you create all these factors to look at the industry trends rotation. What's your assessment? How long? How much do you think over? If you just bought the S P 500, that's obviously one strategy a lot of people do. this trend towards indexing. How much do you think your rotation process looks to add above the market? If you had if you did all the things your model said to do, what do you think it adds over time?
2: We haven't done it in a you know I haven't said if it's going to give us two hundred basis points or anything like that. I haven't done yeah. that kind of analysis. But what we have done is look back at our um, at our record, and we've been running this process for probably over a decade now uh, with these incremental kind of approaches that are just I, I would say out of the mainstream, and I'm I'm more than happy to do it that way. Yeah. Um, the, you know, I don't like looking at traditional factors. Uh, uh, Professor Siegel mentioned the VIX earlier uh, as a, vol- you know, as a measure of volatility. Um, I think it's a useless mechanism. Mm-hmm. Everyone can see the VIX, which means you get zero edge. You have no ability to do any better off the same data point. What I would say is take a look at the skew. Look at what you're paying for volatility three months, six months out. It's way higher than what the one month VIX tells you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the market, the market's not, unworried, let's put it that way. They're not comfortable about the French elections or the, you know, the Dutch elections or the German elections or how Brexit occurs. And they're not comfortable and they're worried about that kind of thing happening three, six, nine months down the line. And you have to pay a lot for protection if you go out that far, not for one month. That they're not yeah. worried about. Yeah, I was going to so, say it
0: didn't seem to jive with reality that there seems to be this, a lot of anxiety in the there market.
2: Is that. Our, we have our own sentiment metric called the panic euphoria model where it's neutral today. It's not telling us people are abullient, and it's not telling us people are, you know, despondent. Um, And when we were in panic a year ago, it was sending us a 97% probability of making money. So when things kind of line up, we don't have that today to say markets are really going to rock, but they should do okay. And when we get down to the very specific question you asked, um, our... Industry group work has had a very good hit ratio. If I look back over the years, tactically we've been we've been able to generate a fair amount of alpha. And I do a report card at the end of the year, every December, saying how did we do? Did we do a good job or a lousy job? Um, we we hold ourselves accountable to our clients. I'm sure they hold us accountable too. Yeah. But I'm willing to go through and say, okay, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? And if we got something wrong, let's go back and try to understand why and try to improve on it. And I'm I'm, I'm really in this to make money.
0: Sure. No, it's it's a it's a great a great point. Um, got you have me intrigued and wanted to follow that model a little bit closer. Um, and so one of the things we talked about. So in, in terms of high level market commentary and in terms of being optimistic, I mean one of the things you know a lot of people drive uh, valuations is sort of earnings trends. Talk about where you see you know the earnings. Um, in one of your notes, you talked about just the the amount of confidence in the consensus earnings for the markets here, how that's changed over the last few months, uh, and where do you see you know sort of top Top level U.S. earnings uh, as a as a as an indicator valuation today.
2: Sure. So th- there's some debate about what the earnings numbers are. <laughs> I yeah. should put that out. A lot of debate. You know, uh, some people use gap numbers as an industry analyst for years. The gap never made any sense to me um, because you're buying an operating entity, not if you took some charges. So um, you're buying the you know the continuing ongoing operation, not something they wrote off. For bad mistakes previously, I know that sounds weird that you should ignore it, but markets do, so as a result of your to make money, not to talk about ethical aspects
0: that's the problem also, with the cape ratio, and uh you know but yeah. now that the people on the other side say you got this performance before bad stuff, you know the performance no,
2: true yeah. I, I i I buy that for for years i would it would it irritate me that if a company took a big charge and stock would go up, wait a minute, we're rewarding them for failing yeah. You know, the market does, so you can sit there and say, I want to take this very ethical, moral position, but the market's going to run you over. So after a while, you say, hey, I don't want to get run over. I don't like track marks on my face. Um, I'm going to try to make – I'm going to join the market in making money. Um, And that's where I would argue there – that's why I'm not a big fan of gap. But on the other hand, there are different – Areas even between the way Thomson Reuters puts their numbers together and Bloomberg and S and P puts their numbers together. No, absolutely, we get some debate around that. So we're if we have we're assuming twenty sixteen is about one hundred twenty dollars in earnings, and we're assuming one hundred and thirty one dollars this year. Three dollars of that's just coming from the expectation of a Trump tax cut in the fourth quarter, and of the other kind of six percent increase, half of that is coming from uh, uh, the, the energy sector having easier comps year over year. Um, and the rest of it's kind of underlying earnings growth, which I don't think is reaching for the moon.
0: Hmm. So what do you think the Trump effect is on? If you have corporate taxes, I mean, I've done some modeling um, on my team to say if we go from 25% to 15% and try to look at you know individual companies and say what percent of U.S. tax are they paying versus foreign taxes. I'm sure you've done some similar work. You're, what What is what is your sense of what do you think the earnings growth could be?
2: Since we don't know the yeah. the the specifics of the bill. And I spent a day and a half in Washington this week. And I Trust me, I still don't know what the specifics of the bill are. Because most of the people on the Hill don't know yeah. it either. Um, and, and stuff is up for debate, including things like border tax adjustment. Um, so what we did was just said, look, in a trailing 12-month basis through the third quarter of last year, um, the effective tax rate paid by the S&P 500 was about 26% change, um, and change. Using a rolling t- four-quarter methodology, um, if they take it to 20, which is the House Ways and Means Committee, what is the, you know, what is that number? You know, you just kind of back your way to pre-tax earnings, and we assume that for every one percentage point, it's about $1.75 of EPS. Now, it won't work as cleanly as I just described it. Yeah. What's going to happen with interest and expense deductibility? Will you get 100% depreciation write-offs in year one? I mean, all these things are moving parts 1031 exemptions in the real estate industry. You know, they are all kinds of moving parts. So um, you're, you're taking kind of a, I, I call these the 1% rule, okay? A 1% change in tax rates dollar seventy-five. a 1% point increase in the cost of debt would be about $0.90 cents of ETS, and a 1% uh, in the dollars about $0.25 cents of EPS. And I would stress one thing on the debt level. There's ballpark X financials, $4.5 trillion of S&P 500 debt out there. Um, they say, well, if that's a 1% change, wouldn't that be a bigger number than I just suggested of $0.90? Keep in mind, for those who want to be really technical, 74.8% of S&P 500 debt is termed out. It's not going to change hmm. because short rates went higher. It's the other 25.2%, the 60-, 90-, 180-day paper that's going to have to be reset. So that's the only part that gets you the interest expense hit near-term EPS.
0: Yeah. So when, when we, one of the things um, on when you talked about the cyclical rotation, a lot of things people do is look at the small cap market. And that's also one people think benefit more from this tax cut. I mean, I don't know how much of your work. Uh, I didn't see this in a note, so I may be asking in something you don't cover. Um, but did you think about the small cap market and how that would tie into your, your models here for more cyclicals? Uh, certainly they've gone up a lot. Uh, people worry about valuations there. I'm just curious what, what your thoughts are there.
2: The valuations of small versus large aren't as wide as they were before. Uh, I'm still on the large cap um, bandwagon for a variety of reasons, including uh, if rates go up in a weird way, smaller companies are growthier, and it hurts their present dive, the future earnings or cash flow stream because of higher discount rates. Although the last 50
0: years, small caps really did outperform when rates were going up, and it sort of... When I, when you run some factor regressions, it actually tells you they're like short bond positions in some times.
2: So, so, so they have a larger financials weight, and that's yeah. part of the reason. Um, but there's also survivorship bias in a lot of that analysis. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not as convinced. The French trauma has done better work on this than most of the stuff I've seen. Um, the, the The other side of it would be, Um, part of our proprietary models when we look at those 360 economic series it would still indicate to us we'd rather be owning large but currency will have a factor in there and that's fairly much what's driven small caps over large caps um, Mm -hmm. since the election was the strength of the dollar everybody sees this as being much more domestically beneficial the problem that i have right now with the border tax adjustment potential proposal you know coming through is that a lot of small-cap companies are able to compete with multinationals because of their ability to import goods from lower source, um, lower cost sources globally using the supply chain, um, and they may actually be penalized a lot harder.
0: Yeah, so, what, so,
2: so I don't think people have really thought that one entirely through.
0: Have, have you thought through, like, do you think the, do you, ha- do you ha- have a sense on the currency? I mean, what is, uh, that may not be your with per se, but do you, does city have a... a yeah, you know,
2: City does have a view that the dollar will, will, will uh, our FX guys believe the dollar will strengthen. I, I'm not entirely on the same page with them in the sense that I think everybody's on that view already. So I think positioning in the stocks have already taken place for a stronger dollar mantra, and I think the dollar's off slightly year-to-date.
0: Yeah, it's, it's that's one something I follow closely and trying to figure and everybody's trying to figure that out and I do worry when I think that that we might have a strong dollar that 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 does seem to be consensus but maybe the out of consensus view is you get a much stronger dollar and not just a, a few percent stronger dollar. So
2: so there're two ways to look here. You're right. If if the dollar's going to surge 20% the way it did in 2014-2015 then there's a challenge. If the dollar is going to move 2-3% it doesn't really matter. Um if the dollar weakens nobody's positioned for that.
0: Yeah. So that that that's that's interesting. So we, we've we talked a, a lot of different topics here. Um, any any place uh, you know, covering of what your your research is focused on that w- that we haven't talked about yet.
2: Um, I, I think with the one thing we haven't talked about, and I'm going to come back to it, is a little bit on the sentiment side that um, that investors are worried that markets are overvalued, they've run too far. There's going to be this geopolitical dynamic. The uh, president Trump uh, can can be erratic, and you know that it's just too late. You know, we've missed it. We should have been there, but we've missed it. Let's go back to bonds and give you context. Since 2005, $1.735 trillion have gone into bond funds. And in the same time frame, U.S.-oriented ETFs and U.S.-oriented equity mutual funds have seen an outflow cumulatively of $86.5 billion. So I'm not looking for um, what I call a great rotation. I'm okay with a minuscule reversal. Yeah. And I think people take time to realize their losses. Um, they kind of hope that they'll buy on the dips, kind of thing, and things will work out. And just context in March 2000, the tech, the tech bubble began, you know, hit its peak and began to fall. It was August of 2001, so 17 months later, when you saw sustained outflows from aggressive growth funds begin. Hmm. It takes that long for people to realize. Um, that, uh, that they've lost money and it's not coming back. So, um, I'm not assuming a great rotation, but I do assume some sort of reversal, um, late this year, it's next year.
0: Yeah, that's sort of somewhat what has me thinking that we could be in a period for a much stronger dollar. I think people don't assume the Fed's going to get to the two to three hikes. They were, you know, said we got four hikes. assumed last year we only got one in the end. I think if they actually do two to three hikes, people would actually be shocked if they do that this year. <laughs> um, and so then you may actually get this sort of bigger tailwind to the dollar. Um, but but it's interesting. What would it take? I mean, I, I that that great rotation is something everybody's been waiting for. Professor Sue and I we were writing about that five six years ago. Certainly very early. Um, although we made the case you should buy stocks over over bonds and that's certainly been the absolute really, right thing to do.
2: Sorry Jeremy, Early on Wall Street Beans you're wrong. Yeah,
0: no, I know. <laughs> I mean, but listen, we are we were saying buy large cap dividend stocks which was absolutely that worked. the right thing to do. Um, but I mean what is what's it going to take for these people to get out of these bond funds?
2: It time. Time and recognition of losses. Well, um, good. You know, I I just think I'm worried that people got too caught up in things like target date funds and life cycle funds as a brilliant thing to do. But, you know, when you're earning 2% or 1% or even a negative percent in parts of the world, um, I don't know how you retire on that.
0: Yeah. Well, Tobias Lefkowitz, thanks so much for being a great conversation. Thank you. Uh, we've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. When we come back from a short break, and we talk with Brian Neider of Lead Edge Capital. <laughs> Welcome back. This is Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. This second part of the show, we talk with Brian Neider. He's a partner in, at Lead Edge Capital, a growth equity fund with nearly $1 billion of assets under management. Brian really is one of my closest friends. I've known him now for just about, I think, 20 years now, Brian. Um, we went to high school together back in, in Boca Raton, Spanish River High. We went to Wharton together. Uh, always great to get another Wharton guest on our show. Thanks for coming on today, Brian. Sure. Happy to, happy to do it. Good to talk. Uh, so Brian's firm, Lead Edge Capital, he's got a really unique background, uh, and their firm is really a, a very interesting one. We talk a lot about the markets on the program, uh, and they have this growth equity orientation, which is not necessarily just the, the strict public markets we, we always talk about on the program. So I thought it'd be great to get Brian's uh, background at his firm, what they do, how they structure their funds. Uh, but before we get to all that, Brian, why don't you just introduce a little bit about yourself, your, your sort of path towards uh to, to getting involved with Lead Edge Capital.
3: Sure. Well, you know, uh, uh, Jeremy and I went to Wharton together. Uh, we were actually roommates for, for a while there. And um, uh, upon graduation, um, did a couple of things that ultimately ended up about a year after graduation at a big venture capital fund, which was called Bessemer Venture Partners. Um, and Bessemer has been around for about 100 years. They're, they're the oldest venture capital fund in the United States. And I worked there for for um, several years, and, and my primary job responsibility there was to find deal opportunities. It was very simple, um, and so I was spending a lot of times on a lot of time on the phone, calling companies, trying to identify which ones were interesting, which ones weren't interesting, and trying to get information from private companies to ultimately inform our investment decision making at Bessemer. They had traditionally kind of done. All of their deals the same way, um, for the most part, which was um, they either would source deals through their network or through um, whoever they could, uh, you know, whoever came to them. And it was kind of like Shark Tank in a way, where they would, um, you know, take a thousand business plans a year and they'd say yes to ten of them and and no to um, and no to uh, uh, you know nine hundred ninety of them, and that's how they did their business. And, and when they hired me, they, they employed kind of a new program, which was okay, look, we're going to have a young guy go out and cold call companies and find us deals because the best ones are maybe getting taken out from under us uh, before they even get to us. And so I spent, like I said, a lot of time on the phone. I probably left about 10,000 voicemails for companies, wrote 10,000 emails, ended up having about 3,000 substantive conversations. That ultimately resulted in about 20 term sheets or offers into companies. Uh, We consummated five deals uh uh while I was there that, that I worked on that I sourced for them and many of them are extremely successful so it was a good run. Um, so that's really where I cut my teeth. Ended up going to business school at Columbia, uh earned my MBA there and then um, uh uh from there was another growth equity fund called FTV Capital which does kind of later stage buyout and growth investments and then um, about five years ago, a little over five years ago, um, my former office mate from Bessemer had started Lead Edge Capital and, and it was pretty nascent at the time, just getting off the ground. And he asked me to join. And, and so the two of us and, and our third partner, Nime, have been running the firm um, for the last several years. And it's been, it's been a really wonderful ride.
0: Yeah, I mean, congratulations, a billion dollars. It's really impressive. Talk Thanks. about what, how you guys, I mean, we hear a lot of these terms venture capital, private equity, growth equity. What do all these terms mean? And, and where are you guys focused in that whole value chain?
3: Sure. Um, So, so look, I I think private equity is is definitional. uh, You know, the the definition of it lies within within its name, right? And so, really, the way that the that that we segregate the world is, you have public equities, which you know all about, and and we dabble a little bit in that, but but most of our time is spent in the private markets. Um, And then there's there's private equity, and so private equity. Primarily, I'm to, I'll generalize it a little bit just for purposes of this conversation. Primarily, we look at it as having kind of three parts. You have, um, on one hand, uh, venture capital, and that's kind of the earliest stuff. And so venture capital, I think about that as um, you know, a, a small business, not too much money in, in terms of revenues or profits, um, You know, an idea on a napkin. How do you get that funded? How do you continue to make that company grow? How do you make your idea a reality? And so when a lot of people, you know, when, when my mom thinks about venture capital, she says, oh, I saw that on Shark Tank. Um, you know, it's just a bunch of guys kind of, you know, investing into ideas. That's that's cool. And that, that's more or less how venture capital works. Um, uh, uh, on the other end of the spectrum, I would put leverage buyouts. And the idea behind the leverage buyout is, okay, um, i'm going to buy an entire company so i'm not just going to invest in a company to help it grow but i'm going to buy out the entire thing and in most cases you're buying it from somebody else as opposed to infusing capital onto a company's balance sheet to help it grow and um, typically those returns are made through some type of operational efficiency gains but also through some type of financial engineering um, in, mo- in many cases they're taking on leverage in order to to make the returns, and so when you look at those types of deals, it's almost like mortgaging a house, right, or, or, or buying a piece of real estate, which is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the profits that I generate from the company that I'm buying, and I'm going to use it to pay down my debt. Ultimately, my debt load will decrease, um, thereby my equity uh, uh, is increasing as long as the, the enterprise is you know, keeping its value the same, and um, you know, I'll make my return that way on my equity investment. And then um, there's kind of like this amorphous area in the middle between growth equity and venture capital. And that area we call, uh, sorry, between venture capital and leveraged buyouts, and that area we call growth equity. And um, in that case, uh, you know, it's more companies that that are along a growth curve. They've gone from five to ten to $20 million of revenue. Um, They're doing something right. Um, And they might take on equity funding because, um, for a variety of reasons, but maybe they want to build out a team in europe and they think that that makes sense for their business so they're trying to uh... trying to operationalize that they don't have the capital to do it but but they're already a ten fifteen million dollar revenue business so they're they're real they're sustainable they're there they might not be profitable so they might not be able to take on debt to do something like that so maybe they take on some growth equity um, sometimes growth equity could take the form of secondary meaning that an entrepreneur might say, "Hey, look, we're doing well. I'll sell part of my stake. I want to de-risk this. I, I own ninety percent of the business, and most of my net worth is tied up in this business. Let me um, let me take a little bit of, of chips off the table." And sometimes you have a hybrid where a company says, "Hey, look, we're we're, we're looking to build out this team in Europe. We've got a new product to build. Uh, that's going to require five or ten million dollars." And then I have all my net worth tied up in this thing, so I'd like a couple million dollars. And so, you know, you you end up with this kind of like amorphous middle zone. And so the main one of the major differences, though, between those three three asset classes within private equity are um, in leverage buyouts and venture capital. Typically, there's a the seller, meaning it's a seller precipitated process. In a leverage buyout, someone is is actively, typically, seeking to be sold. Um, in in venture capital, a company needs money to grow, and so they're actively seeking financing. In gross equity, it's a little bit harder because it's not always immediately evident that the company needs to raise capital. Um, they typically don't need to. They're kind of maybe choosing to, maybe not. So you still would be a little bit more aggressive. And the qualities that a, a good growth equity investor have has typically is, is not only financial acumen, but the ability to... Um, really get out there and find the opportunities and uncover every stone. Um, it's, it's not an easy
0: thing to do. Uh, let me just reintroduce our guest here. We've got Brian Neider, a partner at LeadEdge Capital, this growth equity firm uh, that, that he just was explaining, that that difference between OBOs, venture capital, and, and growth equity. So looking for those companies that are, are trying to raise capital, talk about where you guys are focused, your background. You look at software, tech. Um, that's obviously all the rage. Uh, everybody's focused on the new technologies and where, where they're going after. How do you think about that industry generally today? A lot of money's going after it. I mean, how do you look at deals and, 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 and the overall marketplace today?
3: Yeah, um, look, I think that, that there is definitely a lot of money going after this industry, and I think part of it is because the returns have been really good, and, and that's great. Um, but I think we have to be really prudent about things and very measured about how we look at opportunities. Um, you know, in, in, in my opinion, frankly, a lot of the businesses that are getting funded um, – not only do they not deserve to be funded at the valuations um, that that certain VCs are, are valuing them at, um, in many cases, VCs are putting um, precipitous sums of money into companies, and and they really they're businesses that don't even deserve to exist in the first place. And to me, um, that's where you really have to figure out you know where the line is drawn and, and 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 start you know evaluating pretty hard. We primarily concentrate on software and internet businesses, and so. In software businesses, um, we're typically looking for companies that have strong recurring revenues, meaning that they don't have to sell a new product over and over and over again every year, starting at zero. Um, so if you think about it in its most basic form or recurring revenue, it could be something like, you know, like if you have a, an alarm system at your house, uh, that's a pretty good business because you pay your $40 a month or whatever it is every single month, month over month. And they sell you once and it's over. They never have to sell you again. And there's a lot of software businesses that are like that. So we like the sticky recurring revenues, most certainly. And, and that's not any type of, um, you know, that's not something that, that most software investors don't know, but but, but we definitely look for that. Um, we really try to look for, for strong product market fit. But a lot of VCs, when they're really early, They'll just look, they're pontificating on kind of where the world is going to go, and they're saying, okay, I really feel comfortable about how this product will evolve or that product will evolve. Um, At LeadEdge, we're not that smart. Um, I I can't predict the future. But what I do know is that if I find a company that's gone from five to ten to $20 million in revenues, and um, they've never lost a customer, and they have lots of subscribers, and nobody ever turns it off, I don't really need to do that much work into digging as to whether or not um, the code works or uh, uh, the product makes sense for the market. It's there. The data is in front of me. It's my job to figure out how to get into that company at a reasonable valuation. But so, so, you know, to me, it's more about the business model and really um, evaluating. Uh, um, you know, okay, the market's there, but really evaluating. Um, what do the churn metrics look like? Are people using the product? And as long as you feel comfortable around that, um, you know, you might have a good business. And then lastly, we really try to look, on the software side at least, at sales efficiency. So um, it's sort of a fallacy. I mean, if my dad talks about, uh, if I ask my dad, what do you think that the biggest cost driver is for a software business? He would say, oh, R&D has to be the biggest the biggest driver. I mean, God, they're just like reiterating on that research all the time, and you know they got to be cutting edge. And in actuality, most, for most software businesses, that's not even remotely the case. In actuality, they spend a ton of money on sales and marketing trying to gain um, those subscribers. Mm. And uh, you know, for, for us, understanding, okay, if you're going to spend a million dollars on sales and marketing, what is that going to yield you in terms of new subscription revenue on an ongoing basis? and what is the return on your dollars spent is a really important equation. And I think that there's so much money going after this industry that a lot of companies, when they get so much money in the door, their, their fitness goes away and they're not as strong and they don't keep their metrics as tight. and They don't manage their businesses as tight. And so we're always looking for companies that haven't raised a lot of capital that have really strong metrics. And they could say to me, look, for every single dollar that I spend in sales and marketing, I know with almost 100% certainty that I'm going to bring in, you know, a million dollars of recurring revenue at 80% gross margin, and that's going to recur mm. every year for the next 10 years because nobody ever turns off my software. That's an equation that we like to see. On the flip side, sometimes we see companies that say I've raised, I've, I've invested 10 million dollars, they get one million dollars in recurring revenue. That feels like not as strong of a return. Um, on the internet side of the house. We look at a lot of different companies, but it's largely the same. We try to find companies with strong viral growth. Um, we really like online marketplaces, for instance, companies where they're not encumbered by, ta- you know, like a lot of these e-commerce companies and stuff there, they're encumbered by taking on lots of inventory. Um, they're encumbered by taking on a lot of product. And, and that just creates like lots of complications with the business because you have all these working capital dynamics, you literally are managing physical goods, um, and it creates complexity. Um, the businesses that we like the most are, are almost toll-taking businesses where they could be a platform that other, other people are coming through. So if you think about Uber or Open Table or businesses like that, um, you know, they're really nice businesses because I've made a zillion reservations at Open Table over the years, and um, they have no inventory. They don't really have much of anything all that there is a back-end system for restaurants to manage their tables and um, a front-end system for me to make a reservation it works seamlessly and um they're a money machine, and yeah. so how do I find more of those businesses? Is, is the
0: name of my game. We're talking with Brian Neider, partner at Leadage Capital. Uh, we just got a great background on their investment approach, their philosophy. Right, let's try to see if we could take it to a few examples of companies you've invested in. There's a few, I think, higher profile ones, and these guys have done just an unbelievable job on, on finding these companies, being able to get invested in them. Uh, but one that you know is sort of a, a high profile one, Alibaba. They're sort of in the news all the time. They're you know one of these big Chinese growth stories. Maybe talk. About about what you guys done unique in Alibaba,
3: and, and sort of your, your your vision today. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, I think when uh, my partner Mitchell really led the investment into Alibaba, and and I worked closely with him on that. And we we um and 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 we had a predecessor firm that we worked with a lot uh, that was managed by a guy by the name of Scott Booth, who who really sort of initiated the investment years and years ago. But Alibaba was a private company for a very long time. Um, the reason why we liked the business, sort of initially, was you know China growth was, was really strong. you um, had a lot of strong economic indicators coming out of that region um, in the mid 2000s um, that really persisted for, for a pretty darn long time. Um, part of the reason why we really liked the business, though, was that there was a really strong move to, to, to online. So if you think about what they do, is they're kind of like a almost like an, a cross between an Amazon and eBay. But but think more about eBay, um, where you're buying the goods in most cases from either a brand directly or from a, uh, a, a you know a small business or something like that, and the, the the real sort of interesting piece of this lied in the fact that in the United States there was a big revolution um, probably in the 80s um, and into the early 90s, which was kind of like the big box revolution, and. I went from buying sporting goods at like a small mom and pop store where they had no selection over sneakers or basketballs or whatever it was to going to Dick's Sporting Goods or the Sports Authority and there I could find lots and lots of selection and uh there was a there was a jump and um, during that time a lot of venture capitalists back uh invested in many of the 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 um, big box retailers and not only did that happen in sporting goods but it happened in lots of other verticals as well um, fast forward Amazon now has has crushed most of those competitors. And at some point back in the day those competitors were the ones crushing the mom and pops. Um, if you go to China, the there was never really a big box revolution there. There wasn't the equivalent so much of, of Staples. There wasn't so much the equivalent of Office Depot or Dick Sporting Goods or, or Bed Bath and Beyond or anything like that. And so most things were just sold through a mom and pop channel. And so as the internet took off and as mobile took off, that all happened during a time period where there wasn't really a, 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 a big box infrastructure, and so there was a really massive jump where consumers in China said, "My gosh, look! I I went from buying from a mom and pop to buying from this platform where I literally could get anything in the world. Like I, I can't even imagine all the things that I could get." And the jump was just really, really massive. And so, whereas in the United States, Amazon has continued to, like a freight train, grow and grow and grow, Alibaba's growth was even more pronounced because, at least in the United States, there was some resistance. People would be able to say, Look, I, I want to buy some-, some sporting goods, but I could-, I could go to the sports authority, which is down the street from me, or I could buy it on Amazon. In China, if you could imagine, they're saying, Well, I could go to you know, the 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 guy down the street in the tiny store with no selection, or I could go on to Alibaba, the difference is so much greater. And so there was tons of adoption on the e commerce side into Alibaba. And we loved the business as I alluded to before because um, it was a super lightweight model. They weren't taking any inventory. They were just a marketplace. And they were matching up buyers and sellers and giving buyers a much better experience. And so we liked it, um, and, and ultimately made some large investments 2010, 2011, 2012 into the company um, and, and and it worked out really well for us, um, ultimately when they went public in 2014. Um, as I stand here today and look at the business, the things that excite me, um, not only are the core retail business, which has been growing really nicely and they actually announced earnings the other day and, and did The, the, the retail business, but they've, they've branched into so many more things. and So they have a really large um, payments business and processing business, um, uh, which is branded as Alipay, Finance, um, which is almost like a PayPal equivalent over there. Um, and that's a large business that they own a very large stake in, and, and, and that's really exciting because who knows how big that will get. And, and nobody knows the true numbers of it, but I think there's speculation that might go public later this year. And then they have a cloud business. So Amazon has this business called AWS, which is their an infrastructure and cloud business that's grown quite dramatically in the last several years. Alibaba has something very similar called the Ali Cloud. And, um, and if you look at the numbers on growth there, uh, it's just this tip of the iceberg. I mean, it's, it's insane. They're at massive scale, and they're growing 100% year over year or more. So um, not only do you have the backstop of a really interesting China retail business but you have a couple of these potential massive breakout news stories that they've fostered, been able to grow, that um, we still remain super bullish, and, and, and we're long, we've, we've been long-term holders of the stock, and we still hold quite a bit of stock. So
0: That's great. I mean, I've seen some people on the short side uh, recently speak at conference, so it's good to hear the, the other side of, of, of Alibaba there. Uh, we've got about three minutes left. Um, we did talk, we sort of focused on that one investment in, in the la- last two, three minutes. Any other companies you thought be interesting to, to highlight yeah. of, of your firm's investment approach?
3: Yeah, I mean, look, we, we we've done a lot of software investing. Um, you know, I think that that security is an area that we're particularly focused on now. I think that there, you know, there's a lot of high-profile data breaches. We invested um, uh, two years ago in a company called Duo Security, which is based out of Michigan. Uh, that's probably one of the fastest-growing companies in our portfolio, and they just have a really, really interesting approach towards identity management and authorization. Um, really. Um, Allowing for IT administrators to understand who's accessing their networks and, and, and their sensitive information and, and what they're doing with it, so we've done pretty well with that one. I think that that, that they'll continue to do uh, remarkable. I think it's one you know their metrics are some of the best I've ever seen for a software business. I've looked at lots of them, um, but that's one, and, and we just, we've done really nicely and, and been able to catch the wave on on a lot of the rises with, with Uber. Um, we're very bullish on that company. Again, just another kind of large marketplace um, uh, where nobody, I think most people early on, they didn't even realize how big the market could possibly be. It's just really, really hard to measure. And um, I remember looking at, at statistics three, four years ago where it was, gosh, you know, could, could Uber be, could Uber get the $3 billion in, in gross ride volume? You know, would that be, that would be amazing if they could get there. And now I think it's, it's you know, kind of out in the press that they're, Way, 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 way past that. And I think that's something that's, that, 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 that's been certainly leaked to the press and everybody knows. Um, and it's just, I think the world is their oyster. I don't think that anybody knows how truly large it could get. Anyone who's put, tried to put numbers on it has been wrong and small typically. And um, we're pretty excited about that one as well, just because the market seems like it's, it's, there's just too many potential
0: use cases. Sure. When I think about what what apps have changed my life on a daily basis, whether it's Uber, Lyft, uh, all those all those ride sharing, it's, it's become a part of my daily routine. And so you can sure. see how it it absolutely has a has a huge place. Hopefully, they keep their quality. I started using Lyft a little bit, not. Uh, not a little ding there, but it, it, it seemed okay. in my area, the lift guys were, were, were pretty strong. Well, Brian, okay. thanks for coming on the show. What a great conversation. Um, Brian Neider, partner at Lead Edge Capital. Uh, you've been listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. Uh, for those who've been listening live, we also have a podcast now, Behind the Markets podcast and all the major apps, uh, so please tune in there. Thank you to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno, sitting in the studio. Have a great week, everybody. See you next time.